From the Canon Institute, this is the Russia File. I am Maxim Trugalyubov. We are going to discuss Russia in a pandemic, the Kremlin's politics and Russian society's newfound empowerment. Joining me is Samuel Green, director of King's Russia Institute and reader of Russian politics at King's College London. Dr. Green has focused on social movements and the relationships of power in contemporary Russia. He is the author of Moscow in Movement, Power and the Position in Putin's Russia. In different parts of the world, we see different approaches to handling the crisis. We saw some very intrusive policies in China. We saw less restrictions, but much more openness in Germany. Russia does not seem to be either too strict or too open. It's somehow in between. Where would you put Russia on a scale between China and Germany? What strikes me in the Russian case is just the uncertainty of it all. We see numbers that seem really low, both in terms of numbers of infections and mortality rates. We know that the numbers are problematic around the world. But in some places, you know, we know that the numbers are bad in the UK or in the US because we've been low on testing. And it's fairly transparent. And the government is even fairly honest about that, right? In other places, like China, for example, where the curve seems to have flattened tremendously, we know that the government is probably not telling us the full truth right, about what the numbers actually are. In the Russian case, when it comes to the numbers, we don't know which of those two things it is. Right? We don't know whether the problem is with testing. It probably is to a degree or whether there's actually a censorship and an information control problem in terms of the government not being willing to release what the actual numbers are, which is also entirely plausible. As a result of not knowing which of those two things it is, it's very difficult for any of us, whether analysts on the outside or much more importantly, citizens who have to live through this and try to find a way to survive. It's very difficult for people to know what to trust, who to believe, and how to act. And that comes across in other ways as well, right? So on the one hand, we see the government saying, you know, look, we are still kind of an island of stability. We have much lower numbers. We have this fairly well under control. We, of course, think it will probably eventually get worse. So we want to flatten the curve. But it's not as bad as it is in the West. And yet, they introduce some of the most draconian restrictions, right, that we see anywhere in the world, right? You know, not going more than 100 meters from your house. You know, not walking your dog in the park and that kind of thing. The only kind of places we've seen that are places like Paris and certain parts of Italy and Spain where the pandemic is much, much more pronounced than it is, or at least than we're being told it is in Russia. And so, again, I think that just adds to the confusion and the uncertainty in a way that I'm not sure that we've seen in many other places. In this current situation, under the coronavirus crisis, it seems that politically it tends to favor the incumbents. Even in Italy, the prime minister, who was pretty irrelevant a year ago, he's now a popular politician. In Germany, Angela Merkel is a popular politician again, etc. Do you see anything like it happening in Russia? It does not seem to be that straightforward. What do you think? It does certainly provide support for incumbency, if not necessarily for incumbents. In other words, people just want the government to work, right? And they don't want to spend time thinking about who should be in charge. They want the people who are in charge to do the job. And that means at least initially giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? So these are the people who are in power. These are the people who are getting briefed. They have the information. And let's see what they do and see what they say, right? And most publics, you know, around the world have been fairly willing to go along with significant restrictions and significant losses of liberty in order to get control over the situation. And, you know, couple that with the sense that this is not the time to be talking about party politics, not the time to be thinking about elections, not the time to be thinking about who should be in charge. 
But the flip side of that is that it gives people in power the rope by which they can either climb over the mountain, right, and stand at the peak and reap the benefits for having done well, right, or else the rope by which they can hang themselves. And so it's an opportunity for them, if they're competent and if they do well, to really boost what might be a flagging political career right, and get some credit for having saved lives and hopefully saved the economy to a degree in the process, or else really to prove how incompetent they and their administrations are, right? And so again, to come back to the U.S. example, we've seen you know, Trump have an initial um, bump as a result of people looking to him and looking to the White House and the administration for guidance in this situation. And then once it became clear just how useless that guidance and that policymaking was, we've seen a sentiment go right back down in the other direction. To the extent that, you know, in Russia, although it's not a democratic system, the government and the presidency does rely on public opinion, on popular support. They do have to think about elections as well, although not quite in the same way. I think we see the same dynamics, right? So I think the last thing that most people were thinking about, you know, when the coronavirus hit was, you know, should Putin be in charge, right? This is not the opportunity for somebody like Navalny or Grudinian or anybody else who has a different design for Russia's future to come out and say, what you should now do is get rid of the people in charge and put me in power so that I can do a better job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That I was going to talk about it. But first, I think this interesting story that's evolving in Russia is that at least originally during the initial stages of the crisis, the Kremlin was not taking the lead and uh, they seemed to give an opportunity to the regions, to Russia's constitutive entities, basically led by Moscow, by the Moscow mm-hmm. mayor, Sergei Sabanin. Why do you think that happened? They faced two competing instincts. One is the instinct to really keep central control, right? This is not a Kremlin that believes in federalism and does not really believe that effective solutions can come sort of the middle or the bottom of the system up, but they don't believe in that kind of experimentation. They don't necessarily believe that local and regional leaders even have the best information about what solutions should be on the ground, right? They tend to prefer a much more centralized managerial approach. But at the same time, the political instinct, particularly of the teams that have supported Putin, has really always been to keep him as far away as possible from the detailed aspects of policymaking, particularly when it comes to things that might have a significant impact on people's well-being and on their sort of socioeconomic life, so that obviously he's not the one who who gets held accountable if things go wrong, right? And so I think we're looking for a balance. They wanted to project that Putin was in control, that he was still a strong and steady hand at the wheel. But because they didn't know, I think, what the effective solutions were going to be, they weren't willing to tie him and tie the Kremlin too closely to those solutions. And so I think they probably saw farming this out to regional leaders as a way of squaring that circle, right, of allowing them to take people like Sabianin to take the brunt of the blame for things that go wrong. And we have seen some gubernatorial dismissals in places like Komi and Arhangelsk that at least seem to be partly connected with performance. And what about Putin? Where is he? The price, I think, that they've paid for that has been that people have wondered where Putin is. Putin having amassed this power and having just put forward a constitutional reform that's going to make him even more powerful seems to have been present really in rhetoric only rather than in terms of solutions that that keep people safe and maybe prevent significant economic loss.
Yeah, that's actually interesting. And there was this strange PR campaign that I'm sure was instigated by some of the spin doctors associated with the Kremlin. That one, this campaign that was essentially blaming Sergei Sabyanin, the Moscow mayor, of almost infringing on the central power. Although it's very obvious, this is Russia. So he was acting mm-hmm. with full knowledge of the Kremlin, I'm sure. So that was interesting. And that continued for weeks, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, it's about creating distance, about creating plausible deniability, putting the Kremlin in a position to pivot in whatever direction politically that it needs to go. But the problem, of course, is that the Kremlin is being hit from all directions on this, right? So it's asking regions to do things that actually regional governments don't have authority to do. So the sorts of quarantines and lockdowns that we're seeing in Moscow and other places around the country really are legally in the purview of the federal government and not the local level. And so that you know creates very legitimate questions of, is somebody like Sabianin overstepping his? bounds. But, you know, other things that are also clearly within the federal government's purview, particularly when it comes to softening the economic blow on ordinary Russians, on businesses, particularly small and medium-sized enterprises, the Kremlin has shied away from, again, for reasons that we can discuss and that are probably very complex. But by sourcing this out to the regions, they really have left it up to people and institutions that don't really quite have the authority to solve the problems on the levels that they need to be solved. Or the resources for that. Or the resources, right? So, I mean, things like the Stabilization Fund and the Sovereign Wealth Funds, the National Welfare Fund are all held centrally. And so we see these calls for, you know, if there's all this much money, we have this rainy day fund. Well, when is it ever going to be more rainy than it is now? And why do you think they have not declared a state of emergency? That's a good question. And I think there's, it's hard to know without being privy to the conversations, obviously, that happen around tables that, you know, that you and I don't have access to, or at least that I don't have access to. But there may again be some considerations that declaring a formal state of emergency, again, clearly creates a command and control system in which everything flows back up to Putin. And so if you're worried about Putin being held accountable for things that might go wrong, then that might be a problem. If the Kremlin has the sense that there could be a bigger storm to come, then now, in fact, might not be the time to pull out all of the stops when it comes to something like a state of emergency that you might want to wait until you actually need it. In Russia, the attitude towards the government restrictions is quite peculiar. Despite this myth of Russians being paternalistic and highly dependent on the government, the Russians, in fact, are not. When people are asked if they can change anything about the country in general, they always say no. But when they're asked about their family, can they change their family's situation, they always say yes. They always take their full responsibility for the situation, their own and their loved ones. But in a situation like two days, this often means that they would continue working at the expense of the restrictions, undermining them. And that is a stark contrast to what has been happening in Europe or China, for different reasons apparently, where being responsible means following the restrictions. What do you think about that? Well, so I think there's a number of things going on. You and I have both written about exactly what you were just describing, right? That despite this, I like that you called it a myth, this myth that that Russians are somehow paternalistic and communalistic, that the dominant sort of experience of post-Soviet Russian life has been one of self-reliance, right? Of people really turning to their own resources and taking responsibility for their own lives and the lives of their families and not relying on the government to take care of that for them. And that's, of course, a very rational response, I think, to the way that the state has operated in post-Soviet 
Soviet Russia, or frankly, in late Soviet Russia. But the problem here is that you really can't just rely on your own behavior to keep you safe. That in a situation like COVID-19, safety requires not just you obeying the rules, right? But it requires other people obeying the rules, which means that you either want to make sure that you can trust other people to obey those rules or that the government will enforce those rules in a way that other people won't endanger you. And so there's a question about you know, how much do you trust the system and society, but if you have a low level of trust in that system and society, then we're back to sort of the classical free rider problem, right? In which case you expect that everybody else is going to go about something that looks like their normal lives. And why are you going to be the only idiot sitting at home, you know, trying to stay safe when in fact you're going to be endangered by everything that's happening around you? And so I think that creates sort of incentives and pressures that are very, very difficult for people to navigate. And that process of figuring out how to navigate them is certainly made harder by the sense that I think a lot of people, at least some people in Russia seem to have, if we look at some of these online protests that are happening now, around the quality of the information and the instructions they're being given by government, and then the ability of government to actually manage the systems that they're giving them, right? So we've seen problems with the issuance of these QR codes and other permission slips for people to move about their cities in places like Moscow, where the police have not been able to interpret them properly, or in places like Rostov, where they've asked people to line up for hours to get you know paper slips in government offices, right? Exactly what you wouldn't want people doing in this situation. And so I think that creates additional sort of barriers between ordinary Russians and the state, which makes this, again, a very difficult situation to navigate. Yeah. Now back to the opposition and um, independent political figures. It does seem that this is not their day, right? Although I see that Navalny is trying to come up with a certain agenda, it does not seem like it's effective. What do you think? Well, it's not my place to give advice, you know, to Russian politicians of any stripe. But I think that, I mean, certainly there is a recognition that now is not the time to come out and say, you know, let's have a revolution. Right? It's just not the first thing on people's minds. And so it would be silly for somebody like Navalny or anybody else to come out and do that. And yet... As in the UK, right, where people in the opposition are, you know, noting the failures of the Johnson government while, of course, wishing them well. And in the US, where Democrats are lining up their ammunition for the presidential election in November, I think do see the Russian opposition, you know, beginning to catalog and remind people of the mistakes that are being made, right, of the resources that the state has at its disposal that it is not using to make some of these questions about, you know, all this wealth that the government has apparently accumulated a bit sharper and a bit maybe, you know, further to the front of people's minds. It's highly characteristic for the Russians to keep on undermining the government as much as they can, continue working, trying to evade uh, restrictions, trade, continue businesses despite all the government decisions. Yes, well, I mean, look, uh, this is a new situation absolutely for everybody, not just for Russians, for everybody around the world, right? So living here in the UK, people are learning about this as well. And we see a lot of tension and friction with some people being very conscientious about social distancing and others, you know, being a bit more relaxed. And that leads to, if I open up the Facebook group for the town that I live in, here in, in Farnham, we see these endless arguments between people about, you know, is it okay to play badminton in the park, right? Uh, or can you really only be running and walking and cycling, right? How far can you stretch this? How long can you walk? You know, what is okay and not okay to buy at the grocery store? And, and people take this very seriously, again, because there's this new recognition about the degree to which we depend on other people for our own safety. And that 
that's even in sort of institutionalized society like Britain, you know, that's a difficult thing. Uh, in Russia, given all the dislocation and the transformation that people have gone through in the last 30 to 40 years, that uh, was always going to be probably even more difficult. And yet, if I look, for example, at the, you know, the isolation index that, that Yandex does, you know, we do seem to see people by and large living within the restrictions that are being handed down. Uh, people do read the news, they read internationally, and they're broadly aware, uh, certainly now, of the threat that this pandemic poses. And the old quote was, I hope the Russians love their children, right? The Sting song. And it's now, you know, I hope that the Russians love their grandparents, and they certainly do, right? So I think that's not necessarily where the problem is. I would be very careful about assuming that the reason that people don't observe restrictions is because they don't take them seriously. I think that if we look at the data coming out of various places around the world, for example, a great study already that Kostya Sonian and some others from the University of Chicago did looking at compliance rates with lockdowns in the United States, uh, we find that you know, socioeconomic factors have the biggest role to play. The reality is that locking down, uh, sitting and working from home and keeping an income is a luxury, right? It's something that only certain people in certain classes of work are able to do, whereas others are much more reliant on cash economies, are much more reliant on jobs that require physical presence and sometimes interactions, physical interactions with other human beings. And so they don't have that option, right? And those are also the people who are least likely to have savings to be able to weather a period of prolonged unemployment. And so I think that a lot of the people that we're seeing who are not observing the restrictions, whether in the United States, in the UK, or in Russia, right, are doing so not because, you know, they're flippant or they don't take the pandemic seriously, but because they may not have another choice. Yeah, that's right. And Russia does have a very low savings rate, as I understand it. And particularly when, you know, the Russian government, for whatever reason, is not providing even the level of financial support to citizens that the UK or even the US is providing. There are a lot of stereotypes. We tend to mix the elites with the rest of the country. Is there a way of looking at Russian society in separation from the country's political system? The government and the elites cannot devise a solution to the pandemic or to the economy, frankly, that doesn't run through the behaviors of Russian citizens. And so they have to find a way to get people to behave in ways that will help flatten the curve and support, hopefully, a minimal cost in terms of human lives, right, uh, solution to this pandemic. And there's various ways you can do that. You can do that either by relying on trust that you've built up with citizens, right, uh, or you can do that through coercion, or you can do that through positive incentives. And the reality is that most of, again, the post-Soviet sort of experience has been one of a growing material sort of gap and chasm between ordinary citizens and the state. As you said, citizens have been really left to their own devices and have gone about their own way in terms of finding their material and their economic way in the world. And the state has been, you know, by and large happy to let them and to keep its own resources for itself and its own purposes and the purposes of the elite, right? So I think now, in fact, is when we begin to learn what kind of an interactive relationship between the Russian state and the Russian citizenry is possible. I wanted to discuss the ways we study Russia. Now that the situation with media is changing, it's becoming more difficult, I think. Vedomasti, a newspaper I've been associated with for many years, was recently sold and the editorial policy is changing. Two weeks after I renewed my subscription. 
<laughs> There's generally less trust to sources. So what kinds of sources are you using and uh, how you go about studying Russia these days? Look, I lived in Moscow right, for 13 years before I came here. And so for me, the best way of studying Russia is to be in Russia, right? Obviously, that's not something I can do as frequently as I used to. So you read and you read, you know, as much as possible. And then you read more as you look at social media, right? I certainly rely on the people that I interact with on social media to post interesting things that they're reading, whether it's, you know, news articles and things, you know, that are journalistic or that are academic or, you know, just things that other people are saying to them on social media. Obviously, that's biased by, you you know, the, those kinds of people I tend to interact with. And so you tend to want to poke around a bit more broadly. You know, then when you can, you do, at least I try to do more direct sort of academic research. So I'm about, you know, hopefully in the next few weeks to go into the field with another survey in Russia. Um, so we'll see what kind of data we're able to get out of that. But I mean, for me, really, I won't have a sense of what has changed or not changed in the country until I'm able to go and spend some time and just see the looks on people's faces and have the conversations and just feel what life is like again. Have you looked into this changing media landscape, which is, I mean, on the one hand, what's going on is part of a global trend with social media stealing the advertising revenue from mainstream media. But on the other hand, so this is happening everywhere. Russia is just yeah. a little bit behind the US and Europe, but generally the same is happening. But on the other hand, there's this government presence and uh, state-run media with their huge coverage. So do you think anything is going to change in that respect? We see more new sources come up and then sometimes, you know, go away. But there are important sources of information, you know, on the media scene in Russia that are, you know, fairly professional, formalized media ranging from, you know, central and Moscow, well, not really Moscow-based things, but things like Medusa and Mediazona and Riddle and some of these online projects to regional things like Simla Sim, you know, that are fairly well done and new, right? And they're able to come up because the barriers to entry are reduced by the internet. That's not a new thing, right? But it's not just a story of loss, right? It's not just a story of, okay, now, you know, we can't really read Erbeka anymore, at least not quite the same way. We can't really read Vietnamese in quite the same way. And so now we're left really, you know, only with Nova Gazeta. And, and is that enough? Well, you know, there are constantly new things to read. But, you know, I think that one of the things that, in fact, this pandemic does is force us to look again to more institutionalized sources of information, because it's important not just to have a source of information that speaks to you, right? But it's important to know that the information that you're getting is also being read by millions or at least, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people and is shaping their behavior as well. Because again, we all depend now on the behaviors of everybody else around us. And so one of the things that this pandemic is doing in Russia as elsewhere might be to push people out of their information bubbles a little bit, to push them back to what we used to or what we sometimes call mainstream media. Not necessarily politically mainstream, but large market media is now an incentive for people to turn back to things that lots of other people read. But that puts increasing pressure on those media as well, because at the end of this, we are going to come out the other end with a certain amount of lives lost, right, and a certain amount of economic damage and a certain amount of other things that will have happened, which will be incontrovertible facts, right, things that people know and felt, relatives that people lost, and they will look to their media and ask, were you honest with me? Where were you when I needed to know what was going on? In the heat of things, it's difficult to make that judgment. But I think that media, whether you're thinking about something you know, like Peter Canal or Fox News in the US, may face a reckoning at the end of this if they are found by people to have lied to them in important ways.
There's this feeling now that many narratives about Russia that existed, all this talk about the anticipation of the Kremlin acting aggressively, might disappear or go away or partly go away. What do you think about it? Will we see a different attitude towards Russia in a post-coronavirus world? Well, it would be nice if certain myths were among the casualties of this pandemic. Uh, you know, I've never really bought the argument that because we saw what happened in Crimea, for example, and then the surge in Putin's approval that, you know, as soon as his approval drops, we should expect him to go invade, you know, Estonia or northern Kazakhstan or some other place. I don't think it's quite that um, simple and transactional, but certainly there are plenty of people out there who see the world differently than I do. I think they will continue to see the world that way. Yeah. So I would expect that sort of rhetoric to continue in certain circles in certain places. In terms of Russia's actual foreign policy, you know, certainly this has not you know, had any impact on Russia's position on Crimea. It has not had an impact on Russia's position in eastern Ukraine and Donbass. It has not had an impact on Russia's position in Syria. So Russia's foreign policy does not seem to have suffered from this. If it suffered from anything, it's probably suffered from the breakdown of OPEC plus and its relationships in the Middle East as a result of that. But no, I think when it comes to sort of the Kremlin's worldview and what it takes to be its interests and the threats that it faces, I don't think that this will have changed very much. And I don't think that, unfortunately, this will have changed very much in sort of the content of the conversation around the world about Russia, which tends to, in my view, focus on some threats that are kind of mythical, like invading countries here and there, rather than focusing on threats that are more real, particularly in places where Russia is actually fighting wars and doing things that undermine peace and security. Do you think that this dramatic loss of revenue associated with the oil prices going down, will this, it must affect the Kremlin's foreign policy options, right? I mean, there's been some research done about this, which is a little inconclusive, but you could see it going both ways, right? That the Kremlin might need a little bit more foreign adventurism in order to distract from a flagging economy, or it might, in fact actually need the money in order to afford the foreign adventurism. And so it would push in the other direction. I think the reality is that these sorts of activities are fairly opportunistic and the decisions around them are fairly situational. So in terms of what Russia is, again, involved in at the moment, the war in Donbass and the war in Syria, I think that we have seen the Kremlin reduce this direct cost to the budget from both of those conflicts over the years, in the past couple of years. And I think that they're probably in a position to continue to afford them, at least at the level that they're at at the moment. Russia's fiscal position is not as good as it used to be, but it's still pretty strong. You can afford to borrow and that sort of thing. So I don't imagine that we would see a rollback of aggressiveness there. We might see a little bit more willingness to avoid confrontations in places like Venezuela that are a bit more peripheral to Russia's interests. The Russia File podcast is a product of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and is a companion of Kennan Institute's Russia File blog. The mission of the Kennan Institute and Russia File is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the broader region. For more of our analysis of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia, and to read our blog, please follow us on Twitter at Canon Institute, on Facebook at canon.institute, or visit our site, wilsoncenter.org slash canon.